Welcome to The Humble Hustle, the only podcast for inspiration and motivation with real-world examples of failures that redefine success for men and women who understand that hustling happens every single day. Welcome to Humble Hustle. I'm Jackie. I'm Nicole. And we are here today with one of my dearest friends from the time I was, what, 13, Nia Betts. Hey, Nia. Hi. How are you guys? Good morning. Good morning. Good so morning. Nia is the co-founder of Detroit Blows. And what's your title with the consulting company? Um, are you a co-founder there too? I've been consulting kind of under Telescope Collective for a while, which was kind of an, an independent company that allowed me to work with different, you know, brands and, and nonprofits, sort of carrying through some of the work that I've done in the past before I came into the beauty space. Sunsetting that a little bit, kind of in preparation for some new things that are ahead. Yeah, awesome. So Nia is probably one of the first entrepreneurial kids that I met, other than myself, um, whose parents were very adamant about what are you going to do, what is this going to look like, um, and understanding, you know, what generational, not necessarily wealth, but the story looks like um, and your your parents were really very adamant about understanding what that legacy looks like um, so tell us a little bit about how you got started as an entrepreneur as a kid oh yeah I mean <laughs> well my parents are lawyers by trade that's how they met in, in law school my dad's you know more in finance but I always had to make a case for everything I mean if I wanted to have you know, a present for a birthday or something on my Christmas list. It was, where's the PowerPoint? It, it <laughs> help us understand why we should buy you this thing that you think that you want. What's the value in it? What's the long-term strategy? So from right. a very early, you know, time in my life, it was having to have a plan and making sure that, you know, there was a strategy that made sense to mm -hmm. adults. And I think that also happens. I was an only child until I was 20, 20, 25. I'm lost on the math. I have a... <laughs> 13-year-old brother and a 9-year-old sister now. Wow. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. awesome. Um, but for most of my life growing up, I was an only child, and so I was always around adults, and you learn to watch and to emulate and also to learn. And so I had two very hardworking parents. I remember watching my mom prepare for trials, and she would turn a room in our house into the war room with, like, papers every year. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, honestly, I'd wake up at 4 in the morning. It's like, she's up. <laughs> But part of that was just really understanding that hard work and determination and working a plan really does pay off. Mm -hmm. And so I think from a very early age, I understood that. Right. Um, and you know, I don't know if I can remember any sort of early entrepreneurial uh, efforts, but one that really sticks out is we grew up in a neighborhood here in Detroit called Palmer Woods, and they had this big like holiday home tour. And what happens is, and this was before, you know, people were as comfortable coming back into the city as they are now, which is great. But you would have people of every, you know, ethnicity from every part of the, the state that would come and they would see this designer showcase house and they would stand in line and they would wait <laughs> and they would pay whatever the, the fee was to go in and see the house. And I had a friend that lived across the street. And I said, you know what we need is a lemonade hustle because everybody's standing in this line outside. <laughs> they phase them in. They can only go in right. a few at a time. And they're just sitting here. So we went back to my house, got all the like country time lemonade or whatever we had in our pantry, <laughs> made all this like lemonade, started baking cookies, and we set up a lemonade stand. People thought it was the cutest thing ever, but we were like, <laughs> lemonade, $5 a cup. They're like, that's so cute. We're like, yeah, this is 
the make, truest hustle. Make it and kill it. It's for sure. <laughs> and we went like to the skating. Tigers game. <laughs> <laughs> we took all that money. We went skating. Like we really thought we were doing something. But supply and demand, right? Like right. you have to learn that early. We saw an opportunity and we created a business. Right. Hilarious. Yeah, I do remember that the first thing that we bonded over in high school was like you were doing a presentation for your dad, and I was like, my mom makes me do that. Like, <laughs> are these people related? <laughs> like, have they met in a future life? I mean, a past life, and how funny it was because we were just always on the same accord of our parents were like very strategic about, okay, so what does this mean? Why do you need it? What are you going to do with it? What is my future ROI? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and how do I know that you are actually going to benefit from this rather than just being this thing that you want right now? Um, so talk a little bit more about um, how you've gone from, you know, your parents went from corporate to entrepreneurship and how that affected your life, too, because mm-hmm. um, you saw that transition as a child and in your teens. Um were you ready for entrepreneurship? Did you want that as a kid? Um, or was it just like a standard way of life of like not something you really thought about? You know, I am a true Capricorn. I like structure. I like systems. And so I always have to balance that part with my sort of very hippie, bohemian nature that I'm not <laughs> sure where that sort of came from. You know, I, I struggled, I know, at 18 between the wanting to you know to dive in at at columbia when i was moving to new york and wanting to take a year off to find myself and my dad was like you can find yourself at columbia Columbia. university (laughs) in the city of new york because i'm paying tuition and that's (laughs) the place where you're going to do that and but that did allow me the flexibility to become curious about things in a way that felt safe and structured Um, and i realized that music and entertainment and things that i was passionate about I had an incredible opportunity to take advantage of New York as a city and any sort of, you know, contacts or relationships I had to manifest, um, you know, internships and things of that nature. And so I started watching and participating in big corporate structures, but observing people that were entrepreneurial within them, understanding that, you know, within a big corporation or a company, you have to move projects along. You have Mm -hmm. to develop ideas, you have to incubate them, you have to figure out who your stakeholders are, how you can get them funded. And that's really similar to what you do external to a Mm -hmm. big corporation. But it was interesting to understand and to learn in the context of a more buffered environment. right? And so I was able to do that at Island Def Jam. I was able to do that at Warner Music. I did that at Viacom. And so by the time I came into an opportunity myself to become an entrepreneur, I had a good idea of how to go about it from a process standpoint. And I think that made me feel more comfortable. But what's still terrifying is doing it without the buffer of the resources of a large organization. Are you glad you took that step into the corporate world? Because I know a lot of those that are kind of getting out of college Mm -hmm. now are like, well, like, screw the corporate structure. I'm I'm going to be my own boss. Mm -hmm. I'm going to. And what they miss out in that opportunity, what do you think you gained being in corporate first before you took the leap into entrepreneurism? that you couldn't have gotten if you were just like out of college and like, I'm doing it my way. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely invaluable, I think. Um, Understanding what it is to pay your dues in some respect and to understand why you're doing it, because especially if you're working for good people and there's a reason behind everything. Um, My first boss was this guy, Kevin Lyles, who um, I love dearly, is still a friend. He was the president of Island Def Jam at the time. 
And I remember I used to have to get the coffee and do the lunch order and take care of this book, which was like a report of how many albums, back when we sold albums, how many many albums we sold, like the, the different days of the week and pulling all of the articles for him and making sure that he had a full dossier on anybody who he walked into a meeting with. And even down to getting the coffee, what he would say to me is if you mess up the coffee and the lunch order, I could go into a meeting unprepared. So they're all connected, and this is an opportunity for you to show me that you understand attention to detail and that you can handle sort of multiple channels and avenues of my business interactions. And that was an incredible opportunity for me to learn. And when he left Island Def Jam and went to Warner Music, he took me with him, and he didn't have to do that. And it was because he understood that um, not just that I understood how to pay my dues, but that I took every task he gave me very seriously, and he was able to give me more responsibility because of that. And that model of structure in a corporate environment, I think, is really important, especially in your formative years when you're understanding Uh business. Um, you know, it's accountability, it's working on a team, it's sometimes doing the things that you don't want to do, but understand that if you consistently deliver, people are watching and they will give you greater opportunities. They will listen to your ideas. You will be invited to meetings. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important to understand that type of um, cascading level of um of authority and and power within an organization to understand how systems move and how you can build ideas and incubate them in in those environments and all of that I think is useful you know when you're outside of of those environments as well so you were one of my first friends that were very particular about how you surround yourself with people that you would always just say get it mm-hmm. so we were in New York at the same time Um, And it's probably one of the most valuable things that I've learned from you over these years is that um, not that we have to ever be doing the same thing, but the same work ethic, the same morals, the same values, and what that really looks like. Because out of all my friends that were in New York, if you were not on Wall Street, the only other person I could stay up at night and do work with was Nia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to see your life come like, full circle, we go through college, we come back to New York, and you know we're both up at 4 a.m. still working on presentations, and it's like, did you shower yet? You know, you gotta go do this. Um, <laughs> sitting in the middle of a living room floor, like, yeah. can you proof this, and I'll proof yours. Like, when can we take a proofing break? Shower so we can be, you know, I have to be there at 6.30, what time do you have to be there? Mm-hmm. And having someone that really understands that hustle yeah. of like, yeah, my workday ended at five. Like, my boss left at five or seven, but, like, she has a meeting, and we had all these errors. I had to stay late, fix something else that's for a meeting after that, but she has this 9 a.m. thing that, like, I have to be prepared for on top of getting the coffee, (laughs) making sure the the other assistants are doing what they're supposed to be doing so that I can be calm by the time they walk in the door. Um, How do you think you figured that out so early? I think I was modeling behavior. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think I was watching, you know, my parents, my, my mom especially from a trial prep standpoint. Mm-hmm. I was able to see that, that that's how the work needed to get done and that at the end of the day, as long as you know that you've put forward your best work, which is what my parents would always tell me growing up, your best will always be good enough. 
So in many respects, you're fighting against what you know your best is. Mm -hmm. And if your best is only achieved because you need to put two extra hours of work in after everyone leaves, then you know and you have a responsibility to yourself to deliver against that. So I think I was personally motivated but also empowered by this idea that as long as you do your best, as long as you put good energy into the world, as long as you are operating with integrity and intention, things, good things will happen and will flow mm -hmm. to you. And so I always believed that, you know, my, my dad would say to who much is given, much is required. I know people right. say expected, or, but required right. is what he would always say. There are things that you must do to be able to get the things that you want. And so that work ethic was instilled in me, instilled in you, and that's why yeah. there were many and, <laughs> there were many a nights in New York where we got to go out and party and we stayed out all night and then <laughs> there were many nights in New York when we stayed up all night, you know, getting work done. And right. Yeah, and I will say I still saw that story to the day of like my first internship was in high school and I literally thought D B was crazy. But <laughs> D B like, is my dad. So <laughs> so Jackie interned for my dad. Yes. Um, so <laughs> Country Day required us to do a month internship for our last our last year our last month of high school um, and so instead of going to class you went to this internship every day and exactly what Nia describes with Kevin Lyles is exactly what happened with me at 18 so <laughs> um, trying to understand you know what someone wanted with some either a lot of direction or very little direction um, and I always tell you know especially young people um, if someone trusts you and they give you the keys to everything, your job is to learn, not to think, oh, I have the keys. Mm. Um, and so really understanding what that meant. So, you know, he was a portfolio manager for some of the biggest pension funds across, I would say, the state. And I was set on, I'm going to work on Wall Street. What does that look like? And he was like, oh, that, that's what you want to do. Aha. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. <laughs> like, let's see if this is really what you want. And having full access to every presentation, every dashboard, and him asking me a question of, you know, as little as, well, what was the, the trade for today? And I'd be like, I don't know. And he's like, well, you have access, don't you? And so understanding, like, he didn't give me access just to say, hey, you have access. The access was with the expectation and the requirement that mm -hmm. you are going to go in here and you are going to learn whatever you need to do, especially when I haven't given you a task for the day. So the task, even when you don't have a task, is go do research, go learn something, and be able to contribute actively every day. Um, and so I just always think that's funny when people tell stories about internships. I'm like, internship? Oh, you intern? You never mm -hmm. intern like this. Right. Um, and so <laughs> my first real presentation was in front of Detroit Fire, Fire Fund, um, where he told me, oh, I want you to know, research three stocks for me. Um, and prepare a presentation. And I'm thinking the presentation is just for our office. Like, he's like, oh yeah, and you're coming to this meeting. So I'm never thinking of anything of it. He's like, oh, we don't have time to do it today. We'll do it later. And I don't know what happened in the meeting. <laughs> I was just taking notes. But the next thing I know, he's like, yeah, and Jackie selected three new stocks for you all. Um, and she's gonna present a presentation and show you, you know, which ones we're thinking about adding to the portfolio. I don't think I've ever <laughs> felt so like like a zombie, like I died five times right there. Like, you want me to do what? <laughs> um, but most invaluable experience ever because it taught me that I can ask you to do something, but you don't know. You should always make sure it has your best 
because you never know which hands it's going to touch. Yeah. Um, that is so funny, that story. <laughs> and birds of a feather, right? Like while you were interning with my dad for your senior project, I was interning with my uncle out mm-hmm. of the Chicago office of, of BET. And it was something really similar. I thought, okay, this is going to be great. Like, my uncle runs the show. It's going to be a breeze. I'm going to be, like, shooting content. And, like, I don't know, maybe I'll have my own show by the time this is done. Like, whatever, (laughs) you know? I'm I'm smart. I'll figure it out. I understand systems. Right. All well, like, set in reality. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. You should have seen (laughs) Sidebar. I found my letter sweater from Country Day because we had loaned it out to another girl. We found it at Homecoming. The back of this letter sweater is me literally in track tights with the hugest leg muscles, finish tape around my neck, medals around my neck. Cause and I a ran fresh tra- blowout. Right, exactly right. And a fresh blowout. <laughs> I was like, I suffered from no lack of confidence at 15 and 16. <laughs> so by 18. <laughs> but in any event, so I was in Chicago and I was working with my uncle and just as he was you know, talking about BET in the context of, of Viacom, he's like, you have to understand how money flows within an organization because it's going to tell you a lot about how it operates. Mm-hmm. And so I was working on the 2003 Upfront campaign. So Upfront is essentially where we go out and we pitch all the advertisers and brand partners to give us money upfront before the season begins and then the rest of those ad that ad, those ad units are sold in what's called scatter, like during the course of the year. So I'm going with him to these different agencies for the meetings. I'm preparing information for the pitches. And then we go into the biggest advertising meeting in Chicago. We're talking about the new after-school programming. And then he says, and now Nia, he was here doing our senior, her senior project with us, is going to talk through the new content on our afternoon block and why you should invest in it. And he was like, <laughs> Nia? <laughs> I was like, is this dude serious right now? <laughs> like, is this what we're doing? Literally. Okay. And it was just like, the show must go on. And I had right. to step into it. And I had to talk about how I was the demo, how, you know, the, the companies that they represented, the brands that they represented needed to send a personal invitation to me as young 18-year-old Nia, mm-hmm. who comes home after school and watches BET. Right. And so it was, you know... It was a little bit of you know lights and magic in the context of a very well thought out presentation, but it was the same thing that you were saying mm-hmm. my dad did, which <laughs> is to say, when you're given a task, when you're in the ecosystem, it's your responsibility to make sure that you're prepared because at any moment, we can bring you into the fold and there is an expectation that you will be prepared to speak to what we're doing. Right. Well, that you deliver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. At their level. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking like, do what, sir? Right. Um, so, all right. Give so. me all your dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to write the check? Got mm-hmm. it. Um, and then you were like, and, and now I get my show, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I was like, do I get commission on this? Do I work for a BET ad salesman? I have a job, right? Thanks. Um. <laughs> Maybe I should have. They make good money over there. Entrepreneurship, you know? <laughs> the hustle. <laughs> so, all right. So we've talked a lot about your background. How do you go from that to blows? Where does that come from? 
It's so funny because um, we just had the Forbes conference in town, and, and mm-hmm. Moira Forbes, who is now a good friend, um, interviewed me and one of my business partners, Sophia Bush, on stage. And she recalled or, or sort of found a reference I had made maybe five or six years ago to a sticky note that I had on my laptop that I kept in my computer in my office in New York that said, remember why you started. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a mantra for me, especially in a large corporation. I understood, like, at Viacom, I was able to use, like, our superpowers for good. I ran strategic partnerships and social impact. So everything that I did was a companion to a business strategy, but also had an opportunity for us to reinvest in the communities that we served. Mm -hmm. And during the course of that work, I had the opportunity to come back to Detroit more and more, we were working with you know the automotive companies, obviously they're big advertisers, and so we would be back here every few weeks. And you know I would land, and my hair was in a top knot like it is today because <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast and you can't see me. <laughs> and um, my other business partner, Katie Cockrell, who also represented um, you know Viacom's interests locally in market. I would land with my hair in a top knot and I would say I have to figure out how to pull it together to go into my client and talk about how we have to keep our dollars in the city and about how if they want to be a good corporate citizen, we have to invest more and what that looks like and what we're willing to do to help supplement it. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling outside of the city to get my hair blown out, to pull it together, to go into my more conservative client and um, the hypocrisy of it wasn't lost on me. It was that I myself was coming back from New York and dollars that I could be spending in the city, I was spending outside of the city limits. And so that was an interesting sort of point of tension. And frankly, there were some other people that wanted to do something similar. And, you know, I think we would have been happy to invest in them. And, you know, life happens and, and people, you know, put ideas down. But it was one that we just couldn't put down. And I kept thinking, okay, well, if we did this, it's an incredible opportunity to, one, you know, talk about how segregated beauty is. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea of beauty as activism. Um, Also sort of beginning to understand, you know, conversations around sustainability and non-toxicity. In the EU, there are 1,300 ingredients that they have regulated and have to be removed from beauty products. In the U.S., it's 30. I'm like... (laughs) You know, I don't work for my dad, but I do know what a delta is, and that's one. (laughs) That's a challenging one. And you start to realize that, you know, for years we had products that were put on shelves that we thought were okay for us to consume and to use, and now we're finding out, like, there are things that give us cancer that were on our shelves and we thought, you know, we're we're there to to supplement our lives and to, Mm -hmm. to make us feel better. And it's sort of you know, a a lot of cascading um, kind of thoughts and and reasons why we felt that if we wanted to do something like this, that we had a very specific point of view. Mm -hmm. So we knew we wanted it to be inclusive. We knew we wanted it to be non-toxic. We knew that we wanted it to have this very kind of activist-driven nature to the brand. And then Sophia was the first call, and I said, does this sound crazy? Like, I don't have any experience doing this. Mm-hmm. Like, should we do this? And she's like, we have to do this. And that's really yeah. how it started. Wow. She was the first money in, and she said, tell everybody we're doing it. Like, let's figure it out. And we did a small friends and family round. And then we found a space very quickly. So I moved back home really quickly, mm-hmm. overseeing and managing the construction. And then it just, you know, 
as things happen, you look up and we celebrated two years last month. And so <laughs> <laughs> I came home to work on like a little side project and now it's like a full-time project. So. Right. And how does that feel? You know, there's, there's always a tension, right? Because, you know, you built a career doing something else for 10 years and then you do something very different. And so it's certainly a pivot and there's an interesting narrative how you get from point A to point B and I understand that and I've lived into that and there's also the desire to understand how you can build this in a way that not just makes sense for you given your background but allows you to um, to stretch it into something different than people are expecting and I think that's what is motivating me right now um, from the very beginning, we would always say beyond the blowout. Like mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was more than just about delivering services in the salon. And now I think we have the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, we've started to think about how we can uh, continue to build out Detroit Grows, which is our philanthropic arm. And Detroit Grows makes microgrants to female entrepreneurs, and it makes grants to workforce development programs here mm-hmm. in Detroit that help eliminate barriers to entry for women into the workforce. So whether mm-hmm. that's homelessness or um, you know being a, a, a survivor of sex trafficking or a victim of sex trafficking. Um, previously incarcerated. Previously incarcerated, certainly. And so that work becomes interesting as well. And it's, um, there's an incredible opportunity to, to, to dive in here in Detroit, and there's an equal opportunity to think about how some of the aspects of Blows and Grows get templatized into other markets where we might be able to, um, to make a difference as well. And I think that becomes more interesting to us. You know, we've had, the brand has been incredibly well received, but what's also been interesting, and I'm sure also because of Sophia as well, there's lots of people that are fans of the brand that don't have the opportunity to actually come into the salon and Mm -hmm. participate in any of the services. And so we have built that community and they're a cherished part of everything that we do. And so we have to think about ways in which we're able to offer them ways to to become more involved, to touch and feel the brand. And so I think that's going to look like the expansion of a local market strategy for us in 2020, which I'm passionate about and which for us um, would only happen with a growth strategy alongside of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that products are interesting for us as well. That's almost like starting a new business from scratch. Yeah. It's doing something different. And yeah, so manufacturing so different than service. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But what you learn a lot from a service-based business, especially a service-based business that um, you know provides services for all hair types, is what products you like and what products you don't and what you wish you would have had. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, for sure. And so that has um, provided an, an interesting sort of exploration into ways in which we can extend the brand. I like that. I like that. So um, Nicole was asking me earlier, she said, so what's Nia's background in? And I said, I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure it's in film. <laughs> <laughs> and she that said, film. I said, yep, Columbia, film. Mm-hmm. And then kind of like some advertising and marketing mm-hmm. <laughs> here and there. I was like, she was like, so how do we get to blowouts? And I was like, well, I just remember that Nia was the first person to take me to the Dominican salons in New York. Yes. <laughs> um, and so the story to come and circumvent and be like, you were coming here to do business and knowing that, you know, 
Dominican salons were a staple in, in certain neighborhoods in, in New York. And to come here and to think, you know, you have to go to a salon that's going to require probably four to five hours of your time. It's also outside of the city. Um, and how do you build that here? What I love about going to Detroit Blows is whether I have a weave in my hair or not, I know I'm going to walk out of there with my hair done. And as a black woman, that's extremely important um, because it's a under two to three hour service. Um, and I know that my time is going to be right and I'm not going to feel like anything was forsaken while I'm during in that chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the customer service is great. The actual um, venue, the location, the, the salon is beautiful. Um, and to know that service is not being compromised throughout that process no matter what stage my hair is in, (laughs) is really important, especially because I live um, east downtown Detroit. And so for someone to ask me to go to Southfield, I have to plan that into my day. That's not an easy task for me. And because you're in the Central Business District, I mean, you can take lunch and get a blowout or come in before your first meeting of the day. Exactly, and feel fine. You know, I, I can count every time, probably, if I've been to blows ten times, five of those times I've been like Nia. I need. I know. I can't figure it out. I don't know who's there. Can you just tell me who can do my hair before I have to do this thing at eight o'clock? Right. And she's like, "Okay, all right, we'll figure it out." And so also that's my own access, but also making sure that your front desk people understand those those issues and those concerns that people come up with because being in the central business district, I'm sure you have. With, especially with the new Shinola being there, you have so many people that are like, oh, I need this done as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Most salons don't do that. You're gonna get a hard no of like, no, that just doesn't fit into our schedule. And you all are always so accommodating because you understand the demand that's downtown. Um, how, does that, how does that play into your growth? You know, it's interesting because we think of ourselves as a service-based startup and we really empower our team members with technology. Everybody on our team is on Slack. That's probably not the case in most salons. And I mean everyone, everyone on our front desk staff, all of our stylists, Mm. um, you know, and, you know, Katie and I, who are more involved in overseeing the day-to-day. And we understand that to be in the service-based industry, like a lot of that is acting as a concierge it's solving problems for people we do a lot of weddings so Mm -hmm. it's you know a a lot of brides and and big events for corporate partners and and that means needing to be flexible and understanding um you know what the what the what the system and and what kind of flexibility you can allow but what we always say is before you say no to anyone make sure that the no has come from us because sometimes we have visibility into the schedule we know that if one of our stylists like has you know the flexibility to have a babysitter one day a week that there's another day in the morning where she's able to come in so mm-hmm. we're very close to everybody on our team we have an incredible team and it's not to say that we didn't have struggles along the way like now two years in we have a fantastic team HR is the hardest part mm-hmm. of a service-based business but understanding kind of each unique position that every team member that we have is in allows us to create and find flexibility so that we can service our partners and you know our clients at the highest level. Yeah. And that's really important. It's not being too far away from the business. And so when we think about you know 
Troy Carter used to tell me this. You have to, because <laughs> he would, you know, back in the day when he was managing Lady Gaga, and I would say, like, are you going to be, like, on all the tour dates? Because we were building out her foundation at Viacom <laughs> at the time. And he said, I go to some of them, he said, but you have to always be able to smell the fish. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> it's like, you have to go away so that you can come back and, like, understand exactly what's not working. And so even though I can't be in the salon every day, I think about um, making sure that when I'm coming back, I'm hypersensitive to what's going on, that if there's an issue, I know how to solve it really quickly. But even being away, things like Slack enable me to be in constant communication with the team. Mm -hmm. You know, we have cameras in the space that obviously for, you know, security for, for business administration, but also for me to understand how clients are moving through the space and yeah. where there's friction in the process. So right. there are some things that I can see watching the monitors if I'm in like LA or New York that allow me to make real-time adjustments like via Slack or picking up the phone and talking to everyone. And so figuring out how technology and different systems can help enable the client experience is something that we worked really hard at. And I think it's probably a little different than ways other people operate salons. But again, like we think of it as service-based startup. And so we lean into the technology that enables us to to deliver, you know, the best possible client experience. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about um, the experience in terms of making sure everyone's on the same accord and then being more hands-on in your hiring and what that looks like. Um, I remember, I think it was probably a year ago, Auntie Julie was actually in the salon every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and Julie's, Julie's Nia's mom. Um, and part of it was because of some childcare issues that I know a couple of the um, stylists had. Where does that come from? Because most employers don't do stuff like that. So Auntie Julie was doing daycare to make sure that people could be at work um, when you know schools got closed or someone was sick. She would just come in and be like, okay, well, it's not gonna stop the salon from being able to work. Where does that come from? Because most people would be ready to fire someone or ready to look for a new one because she has childcare issues or Mm -hmm. there's always that issue. Um, Where does that um, graciousness come Mm -hmm. from? You know, it's that golden rule, right? Like to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I want everyone on our team to know that they get to bring their full selves to work because we are often asking them to get up early and do a house call at a hotel to stay late and that means somebody else has to pick up their child like there is a lot that goes into you know on the on the personal sacrifice side mm-hmm. at sometimes for people that work with us and so we try to be as accommodating as we can like when something actually goes wrong um, I mean my mom as everyone refers to as Jules like I mean she's she's just really a class act like yeah. she's been with us from the very beginning to the the very first business plan um you know she has been involved in the background making sure that if there is a way that she can be supportive like she can and especially for our team having her as that kind of matriarchal figure and then and sheila also katie's mom Mm -hmm. it feels like the family business that it is Mm -hmm. and i think that that's really important for everyone on our team it's like we've got your back like if something you know has happened if there's a child care issue if there's a car issue 
Um, you know, we have a, a team member that is on, you know, maternity leave, so it's the first time that we're trying to figure out, like, what the d- dynamics of that look like to make sure that um, she's taken care of when she's not in the salon and mm-hmm. that she knows that she is welcome back and we are ready for her on the back end. And so we've had to, to figure out and build systems that we didn't necessarily prepare for, but part of that flexibility and that graciousness comes from wanting to, you know, make sure people feel good about where they're working. And I would just think as a, from a business proposition, I mean, it breeds loyalty and therefore there's less attrition and you're not in that constant hiring, firing you know, because sometimes you can just get stuck in that and you never right. get past. Yeah. <laughs> that, that the basic HR issue of having enough people there, if you if you serve them well, they serve you well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. we try our best, especially when we get some of these incredible opportunities to travel and be on stages for these big conferences to talk about any part of the business. Um, you know, a few months ago when we were in, in New York and there's, you know, glam, op- glam services that are provided for all the other speakers and You know, we popped up a salon and we said, okay, we want to fly our team and have them provide all the glam services for for the conference. And for some of them, it was the first time that they had the opportunity to go to New York and visit and be flown and put up in Mm -hmm. a hotel. And any opportunity, even for the Forbes conference, we were it had the the opportunity to speak but to also get tickets for everyone on the team that wanted to go and you know participate in various sessions and so we ran a lighter schedule at the salon to be able to shift them in a way where they could participate in the sessions and mm-hmm. it's like cuz that's important to us it's important that if we get these opportunities to evangelize the work that we're doing that people understand that it's it has some to do with a, a bit to do with the three of us, but it has most of the impact is because of the people that are back in the salon keeping the ship moving, right. and we're not disillusioned about that. And so we invest in them because every day they come to work and they invest in what we're building. What do you wish you knew before you started? What do I wish I knew? I mean. I wish that we had raised all the money we actually needed at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I, I wish that I, I had listened every to. Every entrepreneur <laughs> is saying, yeah, right. Like, you know, I think that two years in, like, we really understand from you know a, a, a human resource and talent standpoint um, exactly um, how to to interact with and provide latitude and opportunities for the team. And I wish that. A little bit more of that had come more naturally at the beginning when I was probably stressed about putting other systems in place and the learning Mm -hmm. curve of being a CEO. I think that um, a lot of it you just kind of learn on on the job. I mean, it's also been a very arduous, you know, two years. Again, like every everything looks great on, you know, Instagram and speaking at conferences and doing all of that. But there's also like a very, you know, significant personal sacrifice with diving in on a small business and not being at, you know, a big corporation where I had resources and and much more flexibility. Um, It's certainly been incredibly rewarding more so than I could have ever imagined. And it has afforded me the opportunity to explore different ways in which, you know, we can move forward. We've learned a lot about um, 
equity and specifically inequity in systems. In the VC space, $130 billion got passed around last year. 2.2% of that went to women, and I don't even know what the numbers are for women of color. And so when you start to think about systems of inequity, Mm -hmm. and the more you learn about them, the more frustrated you become. (laughs) Right. And so now it's kind of full circle, like when you talk about um, you know, the work that you were doing with my dad. And for so long, I I wasn't really interested in finance, and now it's the only thing I can talk about. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> right. and so, you know. He knew he'd get you eventually. He did. He did. He always said that. <laughs> that he, he said, Nia's not coming, so I'm taking Jackie with me. But she'll be back. <laughs> she'll be back. You know, I, you know, I came back. He has me studying for some tests now, but it's because – I have become interested in, um, you know, in, in venture, value in in venture and private equity and making sure that capital flows in a more intentional manner to people that don't necessarily have access to it. And mm-hmm. so the kind of next phase of, um, of blows and grows, um, you know, will also be assisted by a more uh, structured and um, more intentional capital reinvestment strategy as well. So I look forward to that also. That's awesome. So you talked, you mentioned it a little bit. I can remember how many times you said, I think I want to quit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can do this. Every I don't know if this day. is a good idea. No. <laughs> um, no, and I do think it is real. Like, it, I think it's normal to say every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Depends on what time of day. Right. It usually changes times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I know you've wanted to quit before, but what makes you not? How do you decide that's not worth it? I mean, I think the the team that works with us, the impact that we're able to see we're having with grows. You know, at Viacom, I could write million dollar checks. Like now, we write checks between a thousand and ten thousand. But really, seeing how that impacts other organizations. There's an incredible um, organization, Birth Detroit, and um, via our partnership with um, with Bumble, we were able mm-hmm. to make a $10,000 grant to Birth Detroit. And I also became a, a birth doula probably about three or four years ago. I had mm-hmm. a friend that had a baby, and I became really fascinated with like just the magic of childbirth. And then you started <laughs> to ask questions, and I would learn about maternal mortality, right? that for black women in the U.S., you're three to four times more likely to suffer, you know, a maternal death, and infant mortality rates are, are high as well. And that just seems shocking to me, especially in a city like Detroit, where it's like 83% of the population is black. So, like, now you're talking about an issue here in the city that I can't unsee now that I know the stats. And so when we gave Birth Detroit this grant, I think it really kind of energized like their organization, allowed them to, um, you know, to really move forward and to develop a really rich partnership network and take on more funding. And I'm very excited to continue to work with them. And, you know, it's this incredible organization run by, you know, women of color, midwives, doulas, like former public health officials. And it's, incredibly important and I get to touch it because of the work that we do at the Mm -hmm. salon and so there's so many different stories when you follow the money right like when you have an opportunity to you know distribute equity 
um, you know, financing grants in any capacity. And so it all comes back around. Like the things I learned, you know, with my dad, my uncle, from my mom, like all of it kind of prepares you for this moment where you understand that the way forward is about creating as many opportunities as you can from where you are. And I think it's about understanding and cultivating like all of those sort of avenues right. from a blows perspective. And that is what interests me. The opportunities for us to enter conversations and to do things that you wouldn't necessarily be expecting a salon to do. It's really just a vehicle for all kinds of opportunities. Sure, yeah. Um, so we've gone through your challenges um, and what that's looked like over the years. What's the biggest challenge? What's keeping you up at night right now? What is keeping me up at night? I think what's keeping me up at night is my ambition, (laughs) to be honest. There's so many things that we could be doing, and so I need to figure out the best way to focus, how to put teams in place, how to phase the growth on different parts of the business so that it makes sense. And I have the opportunity and the bandwidth now to spend time between now and the end of the year making those plans for 2020. And, you know, for the last couple of months, I haven't had the days right. where I want to wake up and I'm like, I want to quit. You know, <laughs> Kristen, you, know that you get on the other side of it. And yeah. I think that's what we also want to make sure that young entrepreneurs understand. It's, you know, the, the humble hustle, like you hustle, but you also get on the other side. And now I have the opportunity to think about, you know, what a growth trajectory looks like for the company. And that is rewarding and so it keeps me up at night but I'm excited about it you know I had an 8 a.m. call with my dad this morning and he was like could you not sleep again I was like I can't because I'm excited about this new thing that we're building yeah they're Mm -hmm. dreams they're not nightmares that are keeping you exactly no that's a a good space to be in yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Melissa kind of talked about that um in September about you know before she was kind of worried about the how do I manage this in a more effective way? Now it's how do I manage the growth? How do I manage mm-hmm. you know these dreams and these new ideas? And what does that look like? And when do I do the rollout? And I do think it comes after you know those rough first initial years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know she's been in business for I think seven now, but she really just feels like you know she's kind of like where you are of like my first two years of real growth where things are really taking off and, you know, people can really see all of the hard work we do. And I'm in a better position to do those systems to really align all of these programs and projects that I've been involved in to really fulfill not just your ambition, but almost like um, your destiny and what that looks like. Absolutely. I mean, and she's a remarkable example of fortitude, right? And that's such an important, you know, uh, skill to to have and I think it's a practice skill because Mm -hmm. there are times when you get a lot of no's and you know that you feel like the world is beating you down but self-care is such an important part of that process and um, you know I've uh, I've sat on a a panel with Melissa before and I know that we have talked about this but um, self-care is so incredibly important like you have to you know secure your oxygen mask before you can those around you and there's going to be days when it's it's challenging and it's hard and you feel like an imposter and you feel like you should be doing something else and 
you have to meditate and you have to drink water and you have to exercise and you have to get enough sleep even when you don't think you deserve it because mm -hmm. all of those things fortify you to you know to, for the long haul and right. you know it's it can be a long haul yeah. and we talked about that a lot with Niles Heron at Pop Dog as well yeah. about the I choose me yeah, yeah. I love you but right but now I got choose me, me. Mm -hmm. is is huge but necessary because you can just empty out and then it just all comes crashing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's good about that but sometimes I'm like choose us come out and play <laughs> I'm like you got him like away from the office like out of the <laughs> <laughs> so every time I see him, I'm like, oh, look, let's hug. This is our opportunity to pretend like we're actually real friends. <laughs> but, yeah. At he's, least he's committed he's, to he's the so, choose me. He's so hardworking, and, you know, he protects his space, and that is important. Yeah. yeah and now I look at what, you know, what he's been able to build. That's, I think it's huge for entrepreneurs. I'm actually working with one right now, and we had something going on over the weekend. And she's like, it's okay. I can cover it from 5 to 7. I'm like, no, you're not. Yeah. Like, Go home to your child. Go see your husband who's been traveling. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's really hard because it's your baby. And you yeah. want to be like, no, no, I got it. I got it. Yeah. I got it. And, and so it's like, let it go. Right. <laughs> Ask for help. Too, Ask for help. You know? Accept the help. Accept because someone it. else was saying, I don't, I, I got it. Mm -hmm. Don't worry. I can be there. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go home. Mm -hmm. We've got it. And it's hard. It's hard to release that. It's hard to trust. You know, your team, even if you've got the best team in the world, you're like, but no one's going to care about it more than I do. Mm -hmm. yeah. We all care about it a lot, too, and we care about it enough. Yeah. yeah. It's That's okay. why you'd see my mom so much it blows. Mom, I need help. Okay. Yeah. How can I help? Which is a huge thing that I think everyone, not even entrepreneurs, everyone needs to yeah. learn to ask for. It just yeah. seems to be almost a stigma. Mm -hmm. It's like worse than saying you have mental health issues is saying, I just, I need help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is becoming, I, I don't, I don't understand the badge of busyness. Like, I'm just so busy. It's yeah. Okay yeah. 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 Nicole just opened that door and I'm asking for help all the time. <laughs> good. <laughs> but it's good because she's like, no, no, I got it. I'll rewrite it. I'm like, I can write it. Just. <laughs> yeah. No, she's no, I got it. To do I can brand do. strategy for clients, get people in the White House. It's like, yes, you're going to need some help, Jax. <laughs> yeah. Just, it's okay. It's a, it's a slow, slow steps for me. Slow steps. So how do you learn? How, how did you learn how to ask for help? I mean. I don't know that it's necessarily an easy thing to do or something that you specifically learn or that I did. I think I, and you're nervous to do it, right? Mm -hmm. I think that I had to start with maybe someone that I knew would actually help me if I made the ask. And I think that was my mom. But I think that people want to help you if you ask. People want to support you if they know how to support you. And I think that it's important to not just ask for help, but to understand the type of help that you need and how someone can meet you halfway. You know, I had a, a, a friend, um, Adam Braun, he has this organization, Pencils of Promise, and one of the things that he would tell us that he actually, I think, probably said he learned from his brother, Scooter Braun, who's a music manager, is mm -hmm. don't accept a no from someone who can't say yes. And it just helps to sort of like reframe what you're asking people for and what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. And so if you're asking someone for help and it's very easy for them to do so, understand that ask is a more measured ask that probably has a better response 
than asking someone for something where you can't quantify the type of assistance that you need and what it will actually do for you if they can provide that aid to you, Mm -hmm. that service to you. And so being able to sort of crystallize the type of help that you need and who you go to for it and who actually has the ability and capacity to help you is, I think, an important skill as well. Yeah. I read something like that the other day. It was basically saying, you know, understand that there's a lesson behind the yes and the no either way that question goes Mm. Um, because either the person has the authority or they don't know how to help you. Mm -hmm. And so they're measuring whether or not, you know, they should say yes because they are not confident in whether or not it's in their capacity. Yeah. Um, And so understanding how important that is and, again, being strategic and calculated and how you ask for help, what that looks like and what your expected outcomes are so that it, you know, actually comes back so you understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we touched on this a little bit about building a team. Nicole was going there. Um, how did you build your team? I know, you know you've know you known Katie forever. Mm-hmm. Um, how does Sophia and, and Katie come in and you decide, like, this is a team that's going to build this with me because everyone knows Friends aren't always the best people to build a business with. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you confidently make that decision and then two years later, you know, be so successful and happy that you did make that decision? Um, what does that look like when you're building partnerships and understanding, you know, we come to this table and we actually decide we're in this for the long haul? Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely kind of clear lanes of traffic on the business, like knowing what everyone is responsible for. Um, understanding how to position it and making sure that you have realistic expectations of one another also. You know, for Sophia, for the first year, she didn't even tell anyone she was a co-founder of the business because it was important for her and it was her intention to make sure this didn't turn into, um, you know, actress Sophia Bush, like, and friends found, right. <laughs> found this business, you know, in Detroit. She knew that in order for it to work, it had to be led and is led by women of color and that it was important for her to be in the background and then as we were thinking about positioning and growth after we introduced it to the market to then figure out you know the best ways on from a visibility standpoint that she can be helpful there's lots of things behind the scenes that she does also between the three of us it was you know imperative that one person essentially kind of you know uh take on the responsibility to really operate the business and with that you know for me came the decision to leave Viacom so it's like one person had to make this their full-time thing and it was understood that I was the person that was going to do that and I think because of that and with that understanding I was given some operational control to make sure that you know if I had to make the decisions in a day in you know day out basis that they were in concert with my partners, but that there was also the flexibility to go off and to do it and to call on them and to ask help when I needed it for specific things that they were responsible for. And that goes back to what we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. I know that if Sophia is on set in Vancouver, that I can't ask her to do something tomorrow that's in the salon. Right. You know, if, if Katie is here in you know Detroit or if she's you know traveling for StockX which is her full-time job I know that 
I have to be able to ask her to do something that her schedule can accommodate. And so understanding that and managing expectations about what people can do and what they're not able to do has been very important in the context of our kind of triumvirate Mm -hmm. leadership team. And that means that you have to build other team members in your organizations that fill in the gaps that you have that are going to be unique to your business because of travel schedules or because of other responsibilities. And so being realistic about what you need and what type of support you need within your organization to help um, you know, to, to help manage against or fill in gaps you know, amongst the three of us has been really important as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what are three things you believe in wholeheartedly? That's such an open-ended question, Jackie. You know, I <laughs> like open-ended I questions. Wash your makeup off before you go to bed. No. <laughs> what That's what we do this question with everyone, which is I love because the answers run the gamut of like God and always yeah. take off your mascara. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, think three things that I believe in wholeheartedly. Um, I believe in reinvesting in women and girls. I believe in this idea of the multiplier effect, that if you invest in women and girls, you're making a much more significant contribution because you're investing in their families and their communities and their ideas that they want to bring into the world. So I um, have been and will continue to be bullish on women and girls. Mm -hmm. What else do I believe wholeheartedly? I believe that if you operate with integrity and intention, that good things will come to you. Mm-hmm. I think that it is important for, um, I believe in the power of the universe and the energy that guides it. And I think it's important to not just expect things are going to happen, but to be intentional about what that looks like and to support that intention like with a plan and a strategy to do your part as well. And that if you do, you know, what's, what's meant for you will find you. Let's see. I believe that the best years of this city are ahead. Amen. I really do. I think that there's something remarkable about what's happening in Detroit right now that has brought all of us back home. You know, it's it's innovative. It's um, it's entrepreneurial. It's Um, It's diverse, even if at times we have to fight for that diversity in systems and business and spaces that we take up. But I really believe that the legacy of the city is going to continue to be one of rebirth and renaissance. And I feel very grateful to be here to to be a part of its next chapter. Awesome. Awesome. Last one. Five words to describe you. I mean. Yeah, sorry. There's last, there's last one? eight questions that are open ended that are like this that are coming right. Okay, so what is it? Five questions. Five that, words that describe who you are. Five. Okay, easy, Jackie. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's say purpose because that's actually what my name means. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I would say nice. That's every people are always like she can't be like that nice. She's not. It's all an act, and I'm like, it's just not like this is what you get. No, she really is. I've been the nice. same way I've been for my entire life. If if you think I'm not, it probably has more to do with you than right. it does to me. Um, I think 
community is another good word. I think also, you know, growing up an only child, like now having siblings now, like I'm always like intentional about the people that are around me. Like I want to make sure that everyone feels welcome. So mm-hmm. I think community is another good word. Um, two more. Yep. <laughs> I was like, I gave you three. That wasn't good enough. It's okay. If you, this will make you feel better, yeah. um, Melissa's were boss ass bad bitch. Boss ass bad bitch. Damn. <laughs> and then she came up with one more. <laughs> Lipstick. No, right. I'm just <laughs> Beyond the blowout. That counts. Yeah, it does. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank, Thank you, you guys so much. This was fun. Thank you for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. Now I'm creating a blog. Do I get either. to ask a question? Sure. Jackie Palmer. Mm-hmm. Who's going to be our next president of the United oh, States? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will probably know by Jane. Okay. <laughs> we'll I'll come back I'll to look you forward on that. to that. I look forward to that. <laughs> I'll probably and I'll actually probably do a full episode on like all of the campaigns I've worked on, what that looks like mm-hmm. and the things that I think people should know about candidates. Mhm. Yeah. Awesome. Very important. But I'll I'll wait until it'll be February. Or Iowa primaries. Okay. okay. Looking forward <laughs> to it. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>we are proudly recorded in the studios of Motor City Woman. All production and editing is by Robin Kinney. 